Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. It's been a while since we've been in the, the gospel of, of Mark, and um, we don't have time this morning to go back and, and give you a, a, a running history, so I'll just encourage you to go back and uh, listen to some of those, uh, some of those passages. We, we made it through the Gospel of Mark up to Mark chapter 9, the Transfiguration, and that was a really good place to, to let off for Christmas, and then we kicked the beginning of the year off with Romans chapter 12. But here we are at the bottom of the mountain, at the, at the, the base of the, the Mount of Transfiguration when the glory of Christ was revealed, and, and we are back down to the, the muck and the mire of the, of the world. And as I told you, it's got one of the most familiar lines, I think, in the New Testament. At least, as I said, one that shows up in my prayers most. And yet, the, the statement, I believe, help my unbelief, is not the headline of this passage. It's, it's actually, that's actually a response to the headline. A response to a very potent promise from Jesus when he tells a desperate father... All things are possible to him who believes. That's the headline. All things are possible. And the man admitting the imperfection of of his faith cries out to Jesus to grant him more, to meet him in the midst of his fluttering faith, in the midst of his, his faith and doubt. And it's this inconceivable promise that, that, that is the headline. And, and, and as, I, as I studied, as I began to apply this passage to my own heart, I, I think it's a promise that, that we don't always believe. All things are possible via the means of faith. Now, notice I did not say there's nothing too difficult for God or Anything is possible for God. We, we, we all believe that. Oh, God is God. God can do anything. There's nothing too hard for, for God to do. We all acknowledge that. God can do anything. But do you believe that He will do it for you in particular? Or do you believe that that power it, it can be applied to your specific situation? That's the crux of the, of the, of, of the passage of the story. Faith makes all the promises of God accessible to us. Faith is the key that unlocks the, the, the treasure of, of the power of, of heaven. And the focus is not the strength of our faith, but the strength of the one we place our faith in. A lot of people talk about, you need greater faith. And, and, they, and what they mean by that is you as an individual. There needs to be something generated in you. you. You need to be stronger. And that's, that's, that's not biblical faith. Faith just simply means that you are fully persuaded that what the all-powerful God promised, He is able to deliver. It's, it's simple faith. It's faith of the, of the size of a mustard seed, which is really, really small. In fact, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. And the Bible also says God, in His, in His gracious ways, in His sovereign power, through the Word of God, grants us faith and increases our faith. And so we say, we believe. Help my unbelief. And the only way that this promise is qualified is, all things, is, is related to the promises of God. It, it's not like God is the wish giver. All things are possible. What are the all things? Everything that God has promised and everything that God 
has promised is enough for us to live our life. So all things have been granted to us already in life and, and godliness. They're there. Our part is to lay hold of them in, in humble faith or in, in believing. And this entire story is actually to teach the disciples and us a vital lesson about faith. Jesus has been apart from the disciples. He is away from the disciples. And in the story, they try to exercise his work. They try to do his work. They try to fulfill the mission that he has given them, and they fail miserably at it. And Jesus is teaching the disciples for the time that he's going to go away. The three that go up on the mountain needed to be reminded that glory follows suffering. You remember Jesus, Peter makes the great confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And the Christ is going to go to the cross and he's going to die. And Peter says, you know, what are you talking about, Willis? That's not what's going to happen. That's not the mission of the Messiah. It, it's, it's the kingdom now. We want the, we want the glory now. You're the Messiah. You don't need to go to a cross. You don't need to die. And Jesus says, it, it's, it's part of the plan. I will suffer. I will die. And if you follow me, you will suffer too. And then those three needed to be taken up on the mountain and showed, shown the, the reality that, that the glory is coming. Yes, you're going to suffer in this life. It's going to be difficult, but the glory is coming. The kingdom is coming. And the rest of them that stayed at the bottom of the mountain get, get a lesson about, about faith. Because this same Jesus, when he goes to the cross, is going to ascend to the Father. He's going to be separated from them. They're going to be separated from him. And they need to know how to have the same power, same access to him on earth whenever he's in heaven, as they do right now. Right now, they're walking with Jesus. Jesus is with them. They see him. If they run into a problem, they say, hey, Jesus, come over here. we got a problem. And Jesus does it. And now Jesus is gone. And they try to do his work. And they fail miserably at his work. And Jesus is going to teach them at us, even though, at us, even though he is separated from us physically, if you will, you still have the same access. The same power is available. And it is available through humble faith. And the way that we lay hold of that is through prayer. And that's the, really the crux of the, of the, of the story. The same lesson that we need, because Jesus is in heaven with the Father, and we're here to do His work. And we need His power to do His work. We can't do it on our own. And He grants us that power only through humble faith. In fact, the, the next several scenes, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, teaches the disciples what authentic discipleship involves. It it involves humble faith, which they're going to learn the lesson here. And then in the next scene, service, where they're arguing over who's greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus is going to teach them that. And then it involves suffering. Humble faith, servanthood, and suffering. That is authentic discipleship. And that's coming in the passages that follow. Let me show you the outline, because this sounds like a lot of verses, and it is. But there's really only... Two scenes, or two, two parts. There's the necessity of faith in doing Christ's work. I think that's the, that's the theme. There's the faithless failure of the disciples in verses 14 through 22. And then there's the forthright faith of the, of the Father. He's honest. He's very forthright about, about his condition, about his situation. And that is the second half. Let's look at the, 
the first one. It begins in verse 14. There's the faithless failure of the disciples. The first thing that Jesus shows us, he sets this whole scene up, he's going to teach the disciples a lesson in a private room at the, at the end. But the first thing that we see is how the disciples fail miserably, and they fail because they're, they're faithless. And you find this arrival from the mountain in verse, in verse 14. Look at you at verse 14. It says, when they came back to the disciples, that's the rest of them, they saw a large crowd around them, a multitude, and they saw the scribes. Now, remember, the scribes are the ones that have come up from Jerusalem. They're the, they're the, the, the experts in the law. And they're there arguing with the disciples. You see, I mean, this, this scene comes right on the heels of, of, the, of the transfiguration. And it's like uh, Moses. Jesus is like Moses coming down from the mountain. Coming down from the presence of God to the faithless people that are there, that are waiting for him at the, at the bottom. Jesus returns from the glory of the transfiguration. And the first thing that he encounters is a demon-possessed boy the inability of the disciples, the faithlessness of, of God's people, mocking scribes, a broken, hurting father, needy, and an unbelieving crowd. This is a blunt reminder to Peter, James, and John who had been on the mountain. You remember what they wanted? Let's set up three tabernacles and let's have the kingdom right now without the cross. And Jesus says it's not time for, 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 the, for the kingdom. In fact, the Father says... This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The same message on the mountain is the message in the valley. And the kingdom's not now. And this is a blunt reminder that the kingdom's not here. (laughs) I mean, you come from that down to this. It's very similar to the way Jesus' ministry started. You remember Mark is set up to... This is to show us the gospel of the Son of God. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The good news. It starts with his baptism. You remember Jesus steps forward as a substitute in baptism? And there's only two times that the Father speaks from heaven in the Gospels. And it is at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus steps forward as the substitute. John the Baptist is saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling God's people. He's calling Israel to repent. And Jesus steps forward as the substitute in the place of Israel, is baptized, and then his ministry begins. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I am satisfied in Him. I'm not satisfied with Israel. I'm not satisfied with you or, or me. But I am satisfied with my Son. He speaks from heaven. And then Jesus goes to face Satan, and he's tempted in the wilderness. And he accomplishes what Adam failed to do, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of the temptation. Adam, as our federal head, failed to, in, in, in that moment of temptation, but Jesus succeeds. He resists temptation, proving that he's the, he's the substitute. The second time God speaks from heaven is in the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain. God again reveals all of Jesus' glory, that he is the Messiah. This is his mission, and the mission is the cross. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the first thing that Jesus does right after that is he comes to the bottom of the mountain and he faces demonic opposition in this, in this little boy and the failure of the disciples. And so Jesus accomplishes what the disciples failed to do. See those two parallels? Adam failed and Jesus, Jesus accomplished what 
what Adam failed to do. Adam didn't, but Jesus did. The disciples couldn't, but Jesus does. And anyone can have that same power, which can do anything, by humble faith. And the father in this story is the, shows us how that happens. The disciples here in this scene have invoked Jesus' name in casting out this demon, and they failed miserably. And the scribes see it as an opportunity to disprove the message of Jesus. Here's a perfect opportunity. The disciples are stand in place of their teacher. And they're engrossed in this argument. And it is a heated argument. And the disciples don't know what to do. And they're so engrossed in it that they don't even notice Jesus and the other three disciples walking up. I love this. Look at verse 15. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. The appearance of Jesus provokes astonishment. It's, it's kind of like you're engaged in a conversation. The scribes are engaged in a conversation with the disciples. They're talking about Jesus. And Jesus walks up and they don't see him. It's kind of like you're talking about somebody and that somebody walks around the corner. I'm sure things got really quiet at this moment. They're actually trying to cover what, what was going on in the, in the situation. By the, they, they run up and greet him. They salute him. Peace be to you. Oh, Jesus, peace be to you. And look at verse 16. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing with them? He, he speaks directly to the scribes. Why are you questioning them? Is what he says. They're, they're big and bad, and they're tearing up the disciples in the midst of their failure, and they don't even notice Big Brother showing up. And when they do, the crowd gasps, and he goes right to the scribes, and he, and he says, what are you discussing with them? I think there's going to be a lot of these scenes like this one day. There's a lot of people running around claiming to represent God like the scribes were, espousing only their own ideals, wielding their own authority. And one day, Jesus is going to return without warning. And everyone's going to gasp. And he's going to say to the false teachers, those who are claiming to represent him, what are you doing? What are you discussing with my people? Now, I want you to notice that, that these... Bold investigators, the, the scribes are rendered speechless. Look, look at who answers in verse 17. And one of the crowd, the scribes don't even answer. One of the crowd answered him. We find out in this it's the, it's the father, teacher. I brought you, my son, possessed with the spirit, which makes him mute. And then he describes what, what happens to the boy. And whenever he seizes him, he slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, and he, he stiffens out, is, is the literal rendering. One of the multitude answers Jesus' question. He's talking to the scribes. The father answers, and he says, I brought my son to you. You weren't here. And your disciples could not cast it out. And they failed to cast it out in front of everyone, even, even the scoffers. This unbelieving man brought his problem to Jesus, and his representatives failed. 
and they had publicly discredited Christ's message. That's why the scribes are there. They're seizing on that failure. And they failed because you're going to learn they had no faith and therefore no power because they looked to themselves, looked inward rather than upward. I think this is a, this is a warning to, to, to us because here you have the unbelieving world bringing a, a significant problem, a problem that the, this man, like a, a worldling, can't solve on his own. And he brings this problem finally in desperation to, to Christ, to Christ's representatives, and they don't offer him Christ. They don't offer him the power of God. They don't offer him anything other than their own abilities. And I think it's a warning to, to the church. How sad it is when the unbelieving world looks to the church as Christ's representatives, and it is, and they bring us their problems, and we have no power to offer them because we look inward rather than upward, or we, we look around us. We offer them worldly solutions in psychiatry and self-help trinkets and positive thinking in a Jesus wrapper instead of the word of the living God, which can transform lives. And whenever they try all of that junk, they leave worse than they came, like this man. And Jesus offers a rebuke to those who do that. Look at verse 19. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he said, he answered them. He's speaking to everybody now, the disciples, the crowd, and, and the scribes. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. You have the description of the disciples' inability, and then you have this presentation of the, of the boy to Jesus. It's like a lament. How long shall I be with you? He's saying, like, I'm, a, I'm a, like a lone believer in the world. There's some echoes of Moses here again. He's speaking to the crowd, to the scribes, and to the, the disciples, the, the scribes, you... You unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you, you leaders of Israel? You're not my representatives. You have no authority. You're blind guides leading the blind, the crowd. You're a faithless generation. How long will I be with you? As long as I'm here physically, because you have physical eyes and no spiritual eyes, then, then you look to me, but I'm going to be gone. And if you don't get spiritualized, then you're never going to be able to see me. And to the disciples, you... You had no power because you didn't look to me. You lack faith because you're proud. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting question. Did the, were the disciples overstepping their bounds here? I mean, if, if you bring me a, uh, a demon-possessed person, I'm going to preach and pray. I'm going to, I'm going to proclaim the gospel, and I'm going to pray. Because I don't have the ability to do this. This is not the purpose right now. Did, did the disciples take on more than, than they could chew? I mean, did they overstep their bounds? Did they do something that they weren't supposed to do? And the answer to that's no. Jesus commissioned them two chapters ago, back in, in Mark chapter 6, that, that they would do this. In fact, they were successful. Mark chapter 6, verse 13, it says, And the apostles were casting out many demons. This is one demon. 
So the, the issue is not that, that they, they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. They couldn't do it because they, the, their lack of faith and they're, un, they're unbelieving. They're acting no different than the unbelieving generation. Their self-confidence and unbelief disconnected them from, from access to the, to the power of God. They were, un, they were indistinguishable from the unregenerate men that they're supposed to be, supposed to be serving. If as a believer, you're indistinguishable from the unbelieving world around you, there's a problem. If you don't affect people that are around you with the aroma of Christ, you may smell more like the world than than Jesus. And if you're preaching or teaching the, the Word of God and there is no power that's transforming lives either in justification or, or, or salvation, you may need to check what you're preaching. These disciples are indistinguishable from the, from the people that are supposed to be serving, and, and Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Um, bring him to me. And look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, and when the demon saw him, Immediately, the spirit threw him into a, a convulsion and, and falling to the ground. He began rolling around and, and foaming at the mouth. The demon reacts violently. He has no problem. They're laughing. They're laughing at the disciples. <laughs> they may have... Are they going to do what they're supposed to do? Do they have the power of God? And then they're laughing. They, they don't do that when, when the boy's brought before Christ. They know who Jesus is. They know his power. This demon is trying its best to destroy this boy one last time before Jesus commands him to stop or leave. And the boy is being convulsed. He's literally concussed to to the ground. It's a word like concussion. this, this, This demon is slamming the boy to the ground flailing around. The boy's foaming at the mouth. I mean, it is a it's a dramatic scene. It really is. What do you expect Jesus to do at that moment? Look at what he does. It may seem strange. Verse 21. He asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? You ever go to the doctor and they give you that, or the emergency room, they give you that, that, little, that little sign. Can you show me on here based upon 1 to 10, how bad is your pain? Well, it's bad enough for me to be here, okay, <laughs> to sit four hours in an ER. <laughs> it's bad. You think Jesus asks this question because he doesn't know? I mean, why not leap into action? I mean, the boy's being concussed on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. I mean, this is, it's not like you can't figure out. It's an urgent situation. Of course, Jesus doesn't need information. MacArthur said he, He's not trying to make sure that the statute of limitations has run out. Like if it's been going along for five years, I, my power can't touch it. I mean, you're going to have to go somewhere else. I mean, Jesus is not saying that. Luke tells us that this is the man's only child. Now, some of you have many children. Some of you have none. Some of you have one. So, so you can imagine what this might be like for this man, an only child, and he's been this way, the man says, since he's been a boy. 
and he can't even can't even walk around Galilee without every fire that he passes by where someone's cooking the the demon tries to throw him into the fire or there's water everywhere he tries to drown him and then wherever it might be and the father's burdened Jesus asked this question because he cares just as much about the father as he does the boy you ever wonder why God asked you to pray when he already knows what's going on in your life well, one of the reasons is because the means for God to accomplish things is prayer. He's ordained it that way. And here's your answer for the other reason. He cares as much about you as he does your problem. And in prayer, you speak to the Father. Have you ever went to God burdened down, laden with, with troubles, and after you unburdened your heart to the, to the Father in prayer, you felt better? Have you ever done that? You know why? Because he really listened to you. And because you know in prayer he cares. And then what Peter says? Cast your cares upon him. Why? He cares for you. And that's why you cast your cares on him in prayer. And that's why he does this to this father. One commentator says this father is not coming to some power. He's coming to a person. And that person is... Jesus Christ, who, just like this father loves this man, it's like this father loves his demon-possessed child, Jesus loves this unbelieving man, and he listens to their pain. MacArthur said, there's, there's, if there's anything that's demonstrated in the miracle ministry of Jesus Christ, it's, it's, it's in the compassion of God that, that he cares about your pain. He cares about your suffering. He cares about the struggle you have with your children. He, he cares about the things that break your heart, and he wants to hear. Well, that's a sweet, sweet truth, isn't it? This part isn't for the disciples or the scribes or the crowd. This is for this father. And Jesus wants him to unburden his heart before the Lord. And this man is very honest about where his, where his faith is. Father's imperfect faith, Christ's indisputable ability, and then there's this final lesson that he teaches the disciples. Look at verse 22. The Father answers him. It's often that he's thrown into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. Help us. You hear the discouragement in his statement? He had hope when he came to the disciples who failed. And now with little hope that's been doused, it's smoldering. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have pity. Run to our aid. Help us. Help is a is an interesting word. It... it, it it means I'm here in this situation. I can't come to you. You must come to me. It's the idea of run to my aid because I can't get where you're at. And look at Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus says, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. The central teaching of the passage. All things are possible to him who believes. Now, some of your translations will say, if you can believe, all things are possible. But 
I think the idea here is a question. Jesus is repeating what the man said. If you can. The man says, if you can. God, if you can. Take pity on us. Come to our aid. And Jesus is saying, if you can. Oh, I can. The question is, do you believe? Because all things are possible to him who believes. Now, Jesus is healed many times without faith. He doesn't require faith every time that he heals. But he asks for it here to teach a lesson. He starts with hope and he primes the pump. And he gives faith a promise to hang on to. Oh, I can, if you believe that. And the man gets it. And while his son's rolling and rolling around and foaming at the mouth, at his feet, he cries out, I, I do. Immediately, verse 24, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my, my unbelief. He uses the same word for help here. He's saying, my faith is enough to look to you. I, I believe in, in, in you. I do believe that you can. But I need help believing that you'll do it for me. He's saying, I've got enough faith to look to you, but I don't have enough faith to come to you and believe that you'll, you'll fully you'll do it for me. Run to my aid in my doubt. And it's in the present tense. Help me keep believing. Come and dispel my doubts. I'm looking to you, but I'm, I'm faltering faith. It's imperfect, and I need you to come to me in that situation and dispel my doubts. The man believes on what he knows. He lost faith when the disciples failed. He regained some when Jesus spoke to him and told him all things are possible, but he needs God's help with fully trusting. So he humble, humbly acknowledges his neediness while looking in the right place. So how much faith is enough? How much faith is enough to come to God? How much faith is enough to, to receive the promise of, of God? Should you just not pray until, until you, I mean, you just got just rock-solid boatload faith that you come to God and you don't serve Him or do anything until you get there? No, because then you'll never serve Him or do anything because your faith is always imperfect. It's mingled with doubt because... You're in the flesh still. You're in the world. You, How much faith is enough? Just enough to cry out to God and ask for help. That's how much faith is needed. Mustard seed is not a whole lot. And the issue is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the one it's placed in. I believe. Run to my aid and help my doubt. That's the pattern that we must follow. You might not understand all the mysteries of the, of the kingdom. You might not even know much, much about the Bible. But if you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, truly believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, say, I believe, help my unbelief, you will see the power of God in your life. Look at verse 25. Here's Christ's indisputable ability. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, He rebuked the unclean spirit, with all the commotion, the crowd starts to form, and Jesus is done with the crowds. He's done with the signs. And so he effortlessly does what the disciples failed to do. You just see it in the words. He rebuked the Spirit. He identifies its foul work. He commands it by sovereign authority. I command you, and it obeys. 
Verse 26, in, it cries out in terror, demons fear the Son of God. They don't fear you. Again, I, lo- I love listening to John talk about people running around commanding Satan to do this and Satan to do that. And he said, you can't even get your children to obey you. Why do you think the devil's going to do it? It reviles Christ, throws the boy into terrible convulsions. He cries out in terror, and then it comes out. And the evidence is that the boy is in such perfect peace that, that they think he's dead. He's like, a, he's, he's like a corpse. So they said at the end of verse 26, most of the people that saw it, he's dead. And Jesus takes him by the hand and raises him up and he, got, he gets up. He's not dead. They've just never seen him without the demon doing all this horrible thing. It's unrivaled power. And it's power that the disciples and it's power that you have access to, but they cut themselves off from it. And Jesus is going to teach them why. And the power has nothing to do with Jesus being right next to them. Look at this informative lesson in verse 28. When the disciples came into the house... So they go into a private home, so the crowd's gone, the man's gone. He, no doubt he takes the, his sealed son and he's rejoicing. He's the only son, he takes him home. And Jesus slips out of the crowd again because his purpose is to instruct the disciples and they're alone in a home somewhere and his disciples, like little children, now it's their turn to ask the question. Privately, why could we not drive it out? Can you remember a time, maybe you're here, you're still young. I can remember times when, when I tried really, really hard and my dad stepped in and he just effortlessly did something. How did he do that? Well, they want to know, they're eager, why they couldn't do it. And Jesus answers him in verse 29. Look at verse 29. He said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer fasting this same scene is in Matthew and Luke and Matthew is very specific this scene in Matthew Jesus says because of your little faith that's how he answers them for I truly say to you if you have faith like of a grain of mustard seed you'll say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you that's Matthew seventeen twenty. so Matthew spells it out Jesus here gives the same answer but 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 he, he packages it in, in what faith looks like. Faith looks like prayer. I don't think that Jesus is emphasizing that this is a, an especially tough demon. I mean, it could be. The Bible talks about that there, there's an order in the demonic realm. Ephesians and Daniel talks about that there are some tough demons out there. But I don't think that's the point of the lesson. The point of the lesson is not, oh, this is a really, really tough one. The point of the lesson is their faltering faith. And the key of why they failed is, is represented in prayer. They didn't look to the source of the power or accomplishing, accomplishing the work. They're self-sufficient. And the humility that would be expressed by, by prayer is what they should have done and they failed. 
the inability to accomplish their mission was due to the inadequacy of their faith. And you know what else? They didn't even do what the faltering father did whenever they struggled. When the man brought the demon and they couldn't do anything to the demon, they didn't do what the father did, which was believed up to the point that they could, and then ask God to fill in the gap of their doubt. They should have looked to God and said, I believe and I'm lacking, help me. And then it would have been possible for them to heal the boy like they'd done before. That's what the Father's in the story for. Our Lord shows these men that a new believer who hasn't even seen Jesus at all, this man, we have no record that this Father has ever even seen Jesus, and he's a brand new believer at the very beginning of his faith. If they had exercised that faith the way that he did, even enough faith, it would have brought down the power of God. And they'd been with Jesus for however long and received all of the teaching. And he teaches them this lesson because pretty soon he's going to be absent from them, not just on a mountain but in heaven. And they'll have all this power available to them to accomplish the mission, but it's by faith. And that faith will be expressed in humble prayer to the Father. I am here... And this is as far as I can come. I, am, I believe that you are. I believe that you're powerful. But you need to come to me. Run to my aid, whatever that aid is. Do you have some difficult circumstance going on in your life? Have you tried to do it yourself? Have you looked to other human beings? And you can't? Do you need the power of God for your life? Maybe you're, maybe you're the disciples. Maybe you're on the other side. You're trying to fulfill the mission that God's given, that Christ has given. There's a mission. Go into all the world. And you're failing. You're burdened. You're stretched beyond your abilities. You've lost your joy. You, you, you don't, even, don't even know what it's all about anymore. Your cup is dry. It's empty. If you're in either of those two situations, then say to God, with whatever faith you have, I believe, come to my aid, come to my doubt, and He will. Put you by your heads. A brand new believer draws down the power of God, this Father. It doesn't matter whether you're a new believer or an old believer. Maybe you're not a believer at all. Maybe you're here and you say, I've never trusted Christ. And you need to say to Him, I, I don't understand everything, I, but I do understand enough to know I'm lost and I'm in need. And you need to say to Him, I believe, help me believe more. And you will. He has the power to command demons. He has the power to grant life to faith. He has the power to bring about repentance. And the way you receive it is bowed in humble prayer, crying out to God. Father, thank you for this lesson.
Thank you for this lesson for me. Oh, Lord, help me whenever I get self-sufficient. Be gracious to me like you were the disciples and allow me to fail and fall flat on my face. And even when I'm asking the question, why could I not accomplish? Then in that moment, Lord, instruct me. Then I need to look to you. And then no matter where I'm at on the, on the faith scale, just a, the smallest amount that is enough to cry out to you and ask you to fill in the gaps, you'll hear. And I pray for any believer here like that this morning, and I pray for any person that's never trusted Jesus, that they'll do that into the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.